angry, depressed, <laughs> you know, all this wide range of negative emotion. But also I'm seeing that people are humbled. Uh, they're thinking about God more than they used to, more than they did prior to the pandemic. I mean, I bump into people, bump into neighbors, or bump into people all over the place, and uh, they all want to talk about God. Everybody wants to talk about God. They're thinking about the second coming of Jesus Christ, the last days. They have questions. Are we in the last days? Uh, we've been humbled. So that's a good thing. That's, that's not a bad thing. There's a new awareness that many things that we cannot control. And this pandemic, something like that, is totally out of our control. But the truth is, uh, we don't know when normal will come back. In fact, we'll probably have a new normal. Things will probably never be quite totally the same as they were. Some businesses will thrive, others will go bankrupt. Our country is on the verge of bankruptcy. We're $24 trillion and counting in debt. I mean, how long is that sustainable? I'm not sure when I can reopen my store. Uh, but when I do, I'm not sure if the customers will come back. People are so paralyzed with fear. So we're living in a new day and we're living in a time when we aren't in control of things. So we've been humbled, uh, humbled by the hand of God. And that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. You know, people want to, uh, the, the country's divided. Some people want to totally play it safe. Others want to go back to just the way it was. And there's protests in our state uh, government houses outside in the streets. And there's, it's like the healthcare workers versus the small business people that want to get open. And it's because of this fear. When I think of fear, uh, Chad said last week, we should fear a bear. Well, he's right. Uh, I think of the zoo. We go to the zoo, we see lions and tigers and bears. There's no fear because they're in their cages. But if you were to climb the wall and go get into their cage, then you'd be smart to fear. Well, the pandemic's a lot like that. You don't have to fear the pandemic, but if you're gonna get around a whole lot of people and, and be careless, then it's almost like getting in a lion cage. You should fear that. So I'm not so sure that social distancing uh, is, is such a bad thing. I really think it's the best thing we could have done as a country. People will second guess these decisions, but a lot of lives have been saved. So I know we want to be back in church together. We want our businesses and our jobs to be back to normal. But, and this is coming in time. Uh, we just need to be patient. So what if we all go broke? What if the country goes bankrupt? What if we go bankrupt? What if we lose our jobs? Well, you know, God's given some amazing promises in the Bible. Number one, he will not forsake us. He won't ever leave us. Number two, God will provide for us. He'll meet all of our needs. He's promised us in the word of God. He'll always be with us and always meet our needs. And if this whole situation is causing us to become more dependent upon him, then, you know, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. This pandemic will actually help your relationship with God if you allow it to. It's already helped me draw closer to the Lord. I'm praying more. I've got a cry in my prayers. I've got a desperation. You know, I'm, I'm praying for the sick. I'm praying for those touched by this virus. I'm also praying for our economy. I'm praying that 
for my business. You know, I'm praying for my family. I'm praying for my church family. You know, uh, my whole day spent in prayer. I'm always communicating with him. Why? Because he's humbled us. This pandemic has humbled us. It's humbled me. Uh, remember our text today, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. You know, this should be our objective anyway, since our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ is the most important thing in our life, then we should have no problem actually praising him in the midst of this trial, in the midst of this pandemic. In uh, everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. In everything, in the midst of all we're going through. Why? Because it's actually a good thing. It's, it's humbleness. Uh, the sovereign God, the creator of the universe, is still on the throne and is in control. He's not stressed out, worried, or afraid. And this will play out exactly how he allows it to play out. So let's use these unprecedented circumstances to draw closer in our relationship with God. Let's just take a look at the most famous psalm in the Bible, Psalm 23, verse 1 through 3. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So look what God's doing. He's the shepherd, we're the sheep, and he makes us, number one, makes us lie down in green pastures. We don't lie down like this. I mean, this has been six, seven, eight weeks of total you know, humility and being made just to stop. We've all had time to read our Bibles and pray and think about him. He makes us lie down. That's a good thing, not a bad thing. He makes us lie down in green pastures. He leads us beside the still waters. That's the waters of his word. We should have been drinking of these waters long ago, but now I find so many people have a thirst, a new thirst. And because of this crisis we're in, he uses it to lead us beside the still waters. And then he restores our souls. He repents our souls. He returns our souls back to him. He restores our souls. That's what this whole thing's about, us being conformed into his image and his likeness is getting our souls uh, sanctified, getting them transformed, our, our mind, our will, our emotions, getting them Christ-like, forming the character of Christ in our souls. And then he leads us in the path of righteousness. That first word lead by, beside the still waters is a gentle wooing and drawing. The second word lead, lead us in the path of righteousness is, a, is more of a driving or pushing. And he, sometimes God just needs to push us. And I think that's what he's doing to his church. Thinking of Jesus as a good shepherd and where the sheep makes me want to look at Psalms 100. If you turn there in your Bible, we'll just read that real quick. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. This is in the New King James uh, Version. Come before his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name, for the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his truth endures to all generations. Know ye that the Lord, he is God. He, it is he who has made us, and not we ourselves. He's the potter, we're the clay. 
He's the creator, we're the creation. He's the shepherd and we're the sheep. We're the people and the sheep of his pastures. So when he understand, he's the boss. He's the sovereign creator of the universe. He sits on his throne, totally in control of this uh, situation, totally in control of all of our life circumstances, down to every little detail in your life and my life. He's omniscient. He's totally all-knowing of everything, all-powerful, all-present. He's a sovereign Lord and King, and we should just, in the midst of this trial, learn to praise him, learn to thank him, enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise as we approach him every day in our relationship with him. Begin it with praise and thanksgiving. Thank him for the pandemic. Thank him for the trial. Thank him for the new sense of humility that you have in your life. He, he's humbled us. He's brought us to a place of dependency upon him. And that's what's so important in life. First Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. I can give him thanks because he's humbling me, he's stripping me, he's, he's creating a new dependence upon him. And that's the most important thing. Uh, Philippians 4, 4 through 7, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Beautiful. Rejoice in the Lord. Don't worry about anything. Bring everything to him with prayer and thanksgiving. The question is really, do we believe that God is in control? Romans 8, 28, and we know that all things work together for good to those that love God, to the called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 29, for whom he foreknew, he also predestinated to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Do we believe in the sovereignty of God? Is God in control of every detail of our life or not? Well, of course he is. And he's working all things for our good and his glory. And if that's the case, this pandemic can be a, a beautiful thing when you look at the big picture. Oh, it's horrible that people are sick. It's horrible that people are dying. It's horrible that all these families are so heartbreaking at the loss of so many loved ones. That's a horrible thing. I'm not saying that's all good. I'm saying in the midst of all this sorrow and suffering and pain, God's work in this for our good and his glory. If the coronavirus will help us draw near to God and help us become more dependent upon him, then can't we say that this is God working for our good and his glory? I know it's painful, but God is good all the time. We should be praising and thanking him in the midst of these painful circumstances, allowing the pain to conform us into being more and more like Jesus allowing this pain to draw us closer and closer in our relationship with him. God's ultimate intention for all Christians is that they'll be conformed at the image of his son. This is what it's all about. So we go through trials and tribulations. We go through valleys, night seasons, winter seasons, uh, that he might shape us like the potter shapes the clay, that he might conform us, that we might become more like Jesus Christ. I want to look briefly today at the Song of Solomon. 
Song of Solomon, or better known maybe as the Canticles. It shouldn't be taken literal. It's a figurative book. It's an allegorical poem. Uh, some people think it's about Solomon and his girlfriend, and they miss the whole point. And it's just that you don't look at this from a carnal perspective. You look at this book from a spiritual perspective and ask God to give you spiritual eyes to understand it. it. It's not about Solomon and his girlfriend. It's about Jesus Christ and his bride. And it's perhaps the most beautiful picture in the Bible of our personal love relationship with Jesus. So let's go there. I've got a few verses I want to pull out of the Song of Solomon for you today. We'll start in chapter one, verse four where his bride's crying out, draw me away. I'm gonna read from the New King James Version. Draw me away, we will run after you. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will be glad and rejoice in you. Draw me away. Remember our text today is draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. But what you'll find is that no one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws him. So in order for us to gain this new level of intimacy with Jesus, we, we've got to be drawn. We need to pray for God to draw us near. And, and when he starts drawing us, then, then we can yield and surrender to that and, and draw near to him so he, he'll draw near to us. God uses the circumstances of our life to draw us closer to him. We're so in love and entangled with the world that God has to shake our world up sometimes. Uh, and if the only thing in life really important in our personal relationship with Jesus, then that's not a bad thing when God has to shake us, that we might return to the only thing that really matters. When you want to draw near to God, you actually need God's help. So we need to cry like the bride did here, draw me away, we will run after you. Draw me, draw me, God. This word draw in Hebrew is moshach, and moshach means to drag to draw, to lead, to march, prolong, to sow, to remove, to delay, to develop, to continue, to scatter, to lift out, to give a sound. So God will, uh, he'll, he'll draw you, he'll drag you, lead you, march you. He'll prolong situations in your life. He'll sow seeds of truth. He'll remove obstacles in your life that affect your relationship with God negatively. He'll delay circumstances in your life. Uh, to, why? Because you're praying, draw me. So God will, he'll draw you. He has to shake things up sometimes to draw us where we'll let go of our love for the world and uh, choose only to love him. When you pray, draw me, you're asking God to do whatever it takes. There used to be a song that my old uh, friend of mine sang many times, uh, whatever it takes for my will to break, that's what I'm willing to do. You know, take my houses, take my lands, change my dreams and my plans. Lord, you know, whatever it takes for my will to break, that's what I'd be willing to do. Shake up my world that I may draw closer to thee. She said, draw me, we'll run after thee. Uh, Paul has several verses in the New Testament about the race that he runs. Second Timothy 4, 7, I fought the good fight, I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Hebrews 12, 2, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. So draw me, we will run after you. In other words, once God starts the drawing and starts changing things and shaking up our world and 
then it's up to us to respond to that drawing. It's up to us to get our spiritual legs under us and start running. Paul said, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. He, he ran his race. He was always a, it's a marathon race. It's not a sprint. It's between now and the last day we draw our breath, there's a spiritual race and we need to run the race, pushing, seeking, running after God. Are you running toward God uh, like Paul ran toward him? We got to get rid of the sin that separates us from God. To run after God is to forsake every other lover, to rid ourselves of all idols. What do we love? What are we serving? What are we trusting other than God? Money, career, family, ministry, success, friends, popularity. I mean, what are we putting our trust in? What are we serving? What do we love? Uh, God wants us to let go of all these idols. These aren't idols in themselves, but all of them can become idols if we love them, serve them, trust them more than we do the Lord. In verse six of Song of Solomon, still in the first chapter, she's, verse six through eight, she says, they made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard have I not kept. Tell me, O whom I love, where you feed your flock, where you make it rest at noon. And his response, if you do not know, O fairest among women, follow in the footsteps of the flock and feed your little goats beside the shepherd's tents. See, she was looking for a special relationship with the Lord. She was wanting to know where he fed his flock at noon. Where's that place of rest? She's looking for the holy place. She's looking for this special place in a relationship. She was very immature. Uh, she was working on everybody else's heart, but she said her own vineyard she hadn't kept. She hadn't kept her own heart. She hadn't tended to it. She was an immature Christian. So she first had to grow, she had to learn, she had to advance in God, but he would come and all through the book of Song of Solomon, you see how this relationship will grow and develop as he nurtures it and she responds to his nurturing. So we jump over to chapter two, verse eight. Here comes the bridegroom once again to her. Verse eight and nine, the voice of my beloved, behold, he comes leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, he stands behind our wall. He's looking through the windows, gazing through the lattice. So here Jesus has come like a deer. And uh, he's come to her because he's about to call her away to a special place. In verse 10 of chapter 2, again, I'm the New King James Version. My beloved spoke and said to me, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. For lo, the winter's past, the rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth. The time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in her land. The fig tree puts forth her green figs, and the vines with the tender grapes give a good smell. Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. So Jesus had come to her in a special way, and he's asking her to get up from her bed of ease, where she is, and follow him. He's going to take her to a higher place, take her to a special place, take her to a new place of intimacy in her personal relationship with him. It's springtime. It's time for new life. The winter season is gone and it's time for her to rise up and come away with him. Come away to a new place of Christian maturity and growth. To rise up and come away to a new place of intimacy with Christ. 
to a new place of separation from the world, to a new place of ministry, to a new place of obedience, to a new place of abiding in Christ, to a new place of your relationship with God. Rise up, my beloved one, and come away. Come away with him. See, our response to his calling is so important because we have these seasons in our life when he seems like he's nowhere around. And then these other seasons will come where he comes close. And, and he's, when he says, rise up and come away, then we need to move. We need to run toward him during this season of drawing in our life. Right now, we're in a worldwide crisis. There's fear and anxiety everywhere. In the middle of all this chaos, Jesus is calling his bride to rise up and come away. Chapter 3, verse 1. By night on my bed, I sought the one I love. I sought him, but I did not find him. I will rise now, I said, and go about the city and the streets and the squares. I will seek the one I love. I sought him, but I did not find him. The watchmen who go about the city found me. I said, have you seen the one I love? Wow, she didn't go when he told her to. And then all of a sudden, one night on her bed, she decided at her leisure or when she wanted to, she would respond. And now he had withdrawn himself. So she runs to the streets and the broadways. I think King James says the broadway. She looks for him in all the wrong places. She goes to the watchman. Maybe those are spiritual leaders, I don't know. But she's looking for him desperately and she can't find him. And then we drop down, I think it's verse four. Scarcely had I passed by them. When I found the one I love, I held him and would not let him go. So he allowed her to find him again. And boy, she hung on tight this time. I remember I went through a really dry season in my life for about five years worst five years of my life. And in 2009, uh, the love of the bridegroom was awakened in my heart again. I found my first love again. And I was like her. When I found the one I love, I held him and would not let him go. I was determined this time never to lose that first love, never to lose that intimacy with him again. It became absolutely the most important element or component in my life was my relationship with him. Nothing is even close to that. Uh, my walk with him is the, absolutely the number one priority in my life. But I went for a period of five years where it was dry in a winter season. And I, I felt like God was a million miles away. He allowed that. That has been part of my journey. Because now I so value this personal intimacy with Jesus that I will never let it go again. Drop down to verse 6. Who is this coming out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the merchant's fragrant powders? Wow, look at her now. She's been in the wilderness experience, but she's coming out of the wilderness, and, and, and her life's like pillars of smoke. That means that she's got a holy hatred against sin. She hates what God hates. It was at the brazen altar in the Old Testament tabernacle where all the sacrifices were made and God's fire consumed the sacrifices. So it was a, always a big fire and a big pillar of smoke there. And that speaks of God's judgment against sin. That's what Jesus did at Calvary's cross. He became sin. He who knew no sin became our sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So she was like a pillar of smoke 
Also at the golden altar in the tabernacle, the priests would burn incense there and that created a smoke cloud in the holy place. So the bride had learned this. She, she's now maturing in a relationship with God. She, he had had her in the wilderness. She's coming out of that wilderness. The Bible says like a pillar of smoke, perfume of myrrh and frankincense. Myrrh speaks of humility and frankincense speaks of faith. And with all the merchants fragrant powders, so now she's changing and taking on the characteristics of Jesus Christ, bearing the fruit of the spirit of love, joy, and peace, and all the beautiful fragrance of the name of Jesus. And I'm going to drop all the way down to chapter five as we try to conclude this thought. In verse one, he says, I've come to my garden, my sister, my spouse. I've gathered my myrrh with my spice. I've eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I've drunk my wine with my milk. Eat, old friends, drink, yes, drink deeply, O beloved ones. So Jesus is saying that he's, he's come to her and he's actually eaten out of her garden, out of, out of her heart. He, he's gathered the humility, the spices, the honeycomb. He ate the sweetness uh, of the nature that he worked in her heart. And after he ate, now he's inviting others into her life. He's saying, eat, old friends, drink. Yes, drink deeply, old beloved ones. Out of her heart, he's inviting the friends over to eat out of her vineyard, out of her garden. And she says, I sleep, but my heart is awake. It is the voice of my beloved. He knocks saying, open for me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is covered with dew, my locks with drops of the night. Listen to her response. I've taken off my robe. How can I put it on again? I've washed my feet. How can I defile them? So see, it was her time of ministry. He was telling her to go and minister to others out of what he's done in her heart, the changes that he's made in her heart. And she didn't want to go. You know, all Christians and we can be so inwardly focused that we forget the reason he's changing us and making our heart such a fruitful place is because he wants us to go and share that love and that joy and that peace with others. We were to help other people. So we, he allows it for as we're growing and maturing, he doesn't push us, but there comes a time in our life that he expects every one of us to learn to go and help people, serve people, encourage people, teach people, minister to others. Every Christian has this calling. If you're going to mature in God in your relationship and we'll all reach a place like the bride has here. She's enjoying this love relationship with Jesus. She's matured so much. And now he asks her to go minister to others. And she's saying, hey, I've already put my robe off. I can't put it on. I've already washed my feet. I don't want to get them dirty. And look what happens. Verse four of chapter five. My beloved put his hand by the latch of the door and my heart yearned to him. I rose to open for my beloved. This, this moved her. What did he do? He stuck his crucified hand in the door where all she could see is his hand. And sometimes that's all we need to see in our life is the crucified hand of our Lord. If we can just get a glimpse of the cross, get a glimpse of Calvary, get a glimpse of his nail pierced hands, his nail-pierced feet, his brow of his head that wore a crown of thorns, 
his back that was striped for us. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. If we can just see his hand, our hearts will melt, and we'll want to run and, and respond to his calling. This is what happened to her. My blood had put his hand by the latch of the door, and my heart yearned for him. I rose to open for my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh. On the handles of the lock, I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had turned away and was gone. My heart leaped up when he spoke. I saw him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. Once again, in her relationship with God, she had missed it, and now he had withdrawn himself. You know, it takes obedience to his calling. When, when he tells us to go, we've got to learn to go. When he says, rise up and come away, we need to rise up and come away. When he tells us to serve others, to get off of our uh, bed of pleasure and just go out and work and, and serve other people, it's important to learn to go. She said that she was looking for him, the watchman who went about the city, they found me. They struck me, they wounded me. The keepers of the walls took my veil from me. Oh, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, tell him I'm lovesick. She had to suffer great pain because she was out of the will of God. She didn't serve when God told her to serve. Then the daughters of Jerusalem responded, what is your beloved more than any other beloved, O fairest among women? What is your beloved more than another beloved that you so charge us? And then she gave this response. To me, this is one of the most beautiful allegorical pictures of Jesus Christ in the Bible. Again, this is not literal. This is figurative. I'm going to read this to you out of King James Version because this has been such a special passage to me in my life that I've uh, often memorized it and quoted it many, many times. It's just beautiful. This was her response. She's trying to tell them about her beloved. My beloved is white and ruddy, the chiefest among 10,000. His head is as most fine gold. His locks are bushy and black as a raven. His eyes are as the eyes of doves by the rivers of waters, washed with milk and fitly set. His cheeks are as a bed of spices as sweet flowers. His lips like lilies dropping sweet smelling myrrh. His hands are as gold rings set with a barrel. His belly is bright ivory overlaid with sapphires. His legs are as pillars of marble set upon sockets of fine gold. His countenance is as Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet, yea, he's altogether lovely. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O ye daughters of Jerusalem. Wow, what a picture of Jesus Christ. Every one of those images in that allegory have special meaning. I don't have time to teach you that today, but this Song of Solomon book is rich. It's deep, and it should be meditated upon. It's the kind of book you want to look up every word in the Strong's Concordance and just see what God's really telling us here. What's the message today? Rise up and come away. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Yes, we're living in horrible, horrific times, frightening times, unprecedented times. Will we go broke? Will the USA go broke? How many of us are going to have to file bankruptcy? How many are going to lose their jobs? I don't know. I really don't. But I do know if we're smart, we will allow God 
in this time of humbling us and drawing us to him that we'll start crying out, draw me, Lord. And, and then we'll respond to his calling. We'll respond to his wooing. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. In the parable of the ten virgins, they were all asleep. All ten of them, the five wise and the five foolish, they were all asleep. And the Bible says, while the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight, there was a cry made, behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. I believe we're in a time where God is waking up the entire church world. This pandemic, as I see it, when I look at the big picture, I'm hearing that every church is experiencing a record number of viewers. I mean, we only have a few hundred, uh, you know, in most churches around, I don't know, two, 300 people, or the average church in America, I think is 65 people. But all the preachers that are doing what we're doing here, they're, they're experiencing a huge number of viewers. I mean, 1,200, 1,800, uh, just where is this hunger coming from? Well, who's, who's out there looking in? Well, see, God's using this to wake the whole church up. The church has been slumbering and sleeping. The Bible says at midnight, there was a cry made, behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. So it's time for all of us to awaken out of our slumber, rise up and come away with the Lord. He's calling us to a place of intimacy. He's calling us to a place of separation. He's calling us to a place of a resting place in our personal relationship with him, a place of childlike dependence. Rise up and come away with him. Draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. So during this time of crisis, let's humble ourselves, draw near to God, turn your fear and anxiety into faith, draw close, find your bridegroom, hold him, and then never let go of him again. Ask God to draw you closer in your walk with Jesus. Draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. Thank you very much. I hope this was a blessing to you today. May the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face shine on you and give you peace. God bless you. Amen.
to 